We're in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore means for this reason. What reason? We have proven that a man is pardoned and justified by faith in Jesus' righteousness, not works of the law or human past works. We have peace with God when we were once at enmity with him. So it is through, by, or in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll interchange these words often, but they basically mean the same. Verse 2, through whom also, who Jesus, we have obtained an introduction, an entrance by faith into his grace, God's grace, in which we stand and we joy in hope of the glory of God. So through him we have attained a continual standing in grace or acceptance and favor is what the word uh, grace basically means here. We rejoice in the hope of a continual grace by hope. We have a continual high priest for us before God. So he not only gives us an entrance into God, it's a continual. It's not a one-time entrance. It's a continual. So we as Christians, we can go behind the veil like the high priest could only do once a year, but we stay there. We're in an eternal relationship with the Lord. And not only this, but we also joy in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. So not only this joy and hope, but joy and troubles and trials and testings. We have continual communion with God, and we will spend forever with him. So we endure everything for Christ as a Christian, as the Christian calling. And he also prays and helps us remain faithful. So by this strength to endure persecution or persevering amidst sufferings, trials, and temptation. So Christ's strength is made complete in our human weaknesses. Now, if you read these verses alone, or the ones we've just read before, you can see how sometimes the uh, once saved, always saved people will use this to confirm our standing in Christ. But he's not finished here. When we get into the other chapters, he's going to clarify what it means to be in grace and what the blood covers and what it will not and where the will and the Christian's obedience is required. And if not, the branch will be cut off. So obviously he's talking now about the introduction, the coming into Christ. But we're going to find too, it's as the scripture says several times, my just one will live by faith. It's not a one-time experience. It's the beginning of a race. It's the beginning of warfare. It's the beginning of a pilgrimage. Uh, we call it a probation. Nobody likes to hear that word because it means it's conditional on you staying with Christ. See, a lot of people think once you're saved, you can live as you please and you're saved anyway. That's a lying spirit and it's a false faith and grace. And you can only get that by taking scriptures out of context and excluding many other scriptures, okay? Verse 4, now perseverance, it works what? Proven character. 
And what is the proven character here? He said, by enduring trials, we prove our character is of Christ, or Christ is in us, helping us. And our God is faithful to help during these testings. Again, it is not automatic. It is not God doing everything like people would say. It's all God. It's not. The plan of salvation was all God's. The keeping the plan and staying in the plan is up to you, abiding in Christ and continuing in him. Otherwise, he says, my father will cut you off. Great message that Paul gave to the Gentiles. Some were boasting against their standing over the Jews. He said, well, God cut them off because of rebellion and disobedience. And he said, unless you abide, remain in his goodness, you'll be cut off also. He wasn't playing games. He meant just what he said. You branches can be cut off, and if they repent and turn to the Lord, they can be grafted back in as individuals. So this is what he's telling us, okay? And perseverance is to prove character, and then character gives hope to us. This character or this gift of hope Hope is to help us and that he is helping us. Hope is always future. So we are expecting him since he's made an entrance for us, since he's made the way open. So when we get in behind the veil, he continually stands there as high priest. And Hebrews says we can come through the throne of grace and obtain help during times of temptation. People who do not use the help do not get it. Christ provides all the warfare weapons, as Ephesians says, the helmet, the shield, which is faith and righteousness. But if no one uses that, it avails them nothing. So you can be given many things, but if you do not use them, it do not work. So people need to be practical. See, they want to think they're honoring God by saying it's all grace and faith. And as Paul said, then they're sinning more to prove this. Well, that's a demonic teaching. It's not going to happen. As Peter said, they promise you liberty. Who do? The grace, once saved, always saved people do. They say, well, you're under faith and grace. And yet Peter says, but you're bound by your sins. You're still in your sins and you're promising people liberty. That's false. It cannot happen. You cannot be a Christian. So that's what he's letting the person know, okay? And hope, number five, does not disappoint. Some translations say ashamed, but it means disappoint. Like John says, to keep ourselves pure, that we will not be ashamed at the coming of the Lord. We will not be disappointed. Why will we be disappointed? Because we won't go with him. If we're not living right and walking in the spirit and following Christ, all your lip services are going to get you nowhere. As far as God is concerned, you're not his. You rebelled like the five foolish virgins. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts or spirits through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this kind of hope, because the character is following Christ and we have the character of Christ in us, we're yoked with him. We join, we walk with him. A person that cannot walk with the Lord is cut off from him. It's up to them whether they stay yoked or not. It's not up to the Lord. 
He always does his part. The divine element is always consistent to the truth. But under conditional covenants we're in, if you refuse to be walking with him or following or being led of him, you cannot be yoked to him anymore. There is no free license to sin in this gospel that God has given us. So this hope will not disappoint because it is founded on the fact that Christ saved us and will give hope of the present and future for testing time. So if he's delivered us from the past, it's with the intention to help us in the present or it wouldn't do much good. And it will do us in the favor in the future if we continue with him. The lion shepherds say we're saved, once saved, always saved, past, present, future. That does not apply to the individual. That applies to God's plan. And he's finished it. And he doesn't have to offer himself for the world anymore. But the individual branch can be cut off or can add it. So if you continue with the Lord, then you are saved in the present. You have eternal life because you have Christ in you. If you backslide and turn away, you have no future with Christ. You're cut off. Faith and grace will not work for you. So it's conditional on staying with Christ and drawing from the power of his spirit to help us. So there's where the Lord's help comes in. We are not disappointed for this love of God, this care, communion, and peace are given to us by the Holy Spirit. And how is it given? He is the Spirit of Christ. So when he saves us and cleanses our spirit from past sin, remember the law could only cover. It took Christ to remove the sins and put us in right standing spiritually. And once he did that, we were the temple of the Lord. We were made capable and able for the Lord to indwell us. He would not indwell us while we were living in a sinful state. He cannot do this. It's not his nature. So once he cleanses our past, then he can come and live with us, joining with our spirit. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. So there's a connection. But it's still always dependent on the man's continuance And as the scripture says, my just one shall live by faith. It didn't say he gets saved one time and never has to worry about anything. Paul said, we've start the race. He said, when you start, doesn't mean you finish the race. Now he could say at the end, near the end of his life, he said, I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight of faith. He didn't say that before. See, he was fighting it, but he knew his end was coming. And the spirit bore witness to him that he was going. He was ready. And, of course, he was martyred for the Lord. So we are not disappointed for the love of God, this care and peace, is given to us by the Holy Spirit being given. And Paul makes it plain. He says, and Christ is that spirit. So we have the oneness of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They always dwell in perfect unity. They're not as separated as we think they are. People like to speculate like they're three gods. They're not. They're three manifestations and a three personality. But uh, as you read Corinthians with the ministries and the gifts, 
every ministry and gift that God gives, the Father's involved, the Son's involved, and the Spirit's involved. It's always that way in spiritual matters, okay? So the kingdom of God is peace, joy, and righteousness. But notice it clarifies it. It's in the Holy Spirit. So if we don't have the Spirit of Christ in us, we don't have the kingdom because the peace and righteousness come from God, from Christ. It's not as these uh, false teachers will have you believe that God gives you these separate gifts like you have the gift of salvation and your ticket to heaven. The scripture doesn't teach that. It says Christ is our sanctification and redemption. It's him. So as long as we stay in Christ, the vine, we have eternal life in the present. But if we don't stay in him, then eternal life leaves us. That's what it means to be cut off. And it says that the end will be burning. He's symbolizing the lake of fire eventually for the wicked, the backslider, and the rebellious. Okay? So it's always linked. Our spirituality is linked with our relationship with Christ. Everything he gives spiritually is in him. It's not separate from him. A lot of people think, well, I've got my salvation. He's just not my Lord. Well, if he's not your Lord, you're not saved. Very plain and simple. And if you're obeying him, that proves that he's Lord and that your character has proven you're obeying the Lord. And if you don't, Jesus said, why call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I tell you? Why? Because he's not your Lord anymore or never was. As the great judgment, he's going to say, many come to me saying, Lord, Lord. They believe he's the Son of God. They believe he died on the cross. They believe all the doctrines, but they don't follow the Lord, and they're not led of the Spirit, so Christ is not in them. And that's the masses of denomination. And he said, I will say to them, I never knew you. And if he never knew them, he was never in them. And he says, you're workers of lawlessness. That clarifies the sinner's standing with God. He's opposed to the law of Christ. He's opposed to submitting to God and Christ. So he's called lawless. He's living in a selfish independent state from God, which will not do spiritually. So it's Christ in us, helping us and interceding for us. As we've said before, there's only one intercessor. People like to say, well, Christ is interceding in heaven and the Holy Spirit's in us. But the Bible tells us that Christ is the Spirit. And therefore, Hebrews says there's one mediator. See, it's the divine Godhead. Doesn't clarify as two, but it will explain that when we teach the fruits of the Spirit and attributes of God. They're different facets of the same diamond. They have to be a facet or they're not a part of the diamond. So they're one with the diamond. You cannot take a facet away from a standard diamond. It either has the right amount or it doesn't. Otherwise, it's not considered a certain type of diamond. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, we were helpless to redeem ourselves. We were found to be sinners. So Isaiah says, there's none that's been righteous, no, not one. And we'll find out he's going to explain because not only 
did we sin willfully, but we are born into a sinful nature because of the sin of Adam. And we'll talk about that later. It's not called the sin of Eve. It's called the sin of Adam, and we'll explain that later. So we could not help ourselves. We have nothing to offer. An evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. All their offerings are not acceptable. In the law, it said the offerings of the wicked, of prostitutes and thieves and so forth, is an abomination to the Lord. It's an insult for wicked people to sacrifice to the Lord because they have no standing with him, and he despises that. The only thing he wants from them is repentance. A lot of people try to ease their conscience by doing good. And and as we've said before, the masses of mankind think at the day of judgment, God's going to weigh their good deeds against their bad deeds. It's got to be done that way. You're either going to be following Christ or you're not. That's going to be the foundation for all judgments. And all judgments are according to a man's works, not his belief alone. See, James will explain that. If you have true faith, then you have works to prove it. If you have no works, your faith is dead, is useless, it's vain. So in all of Revelations, it speaks of several judgments, all judgments under the old. It's always according to works because the works means it will prove where where the source was. If you have the right works, then you're following Christ because he's giving us the power and the strength to live the spiritual life. He's talking about spiritual works that God approves of. But when he judges every man for works, he's going to look for the foundation. Was it built on Christ or was it Pharisaical righteousness? And that will determine the punishments and the rewards for the wicked and for the righteous. Okay. So as we see, he said, uh, while we were still helpless, Christ comes at God's timing, it meant at the right time, to die for the sinner and to be a representative for the sinner. And he did this by offering innocent blood, no sin in him, okay? And the scripture in 425 going back also tells us too that he died for us and he was raised for us. His death, he was judged for the sinner. Scripture says he was made sin. He was represented as sin as far as God was concerned. And so we were judged with him when he was judged on the cross. And when he was resurrected by the Spirit, the proof that he was acceptable to God and there was no sin in him, we were raised with him. We were given the life of Christ because of what he's done. So, verse 7 For one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. It's a rare thing to die for a righteous person, but it's a good person, uh, is implying a better state, uh, that he might die. A lot of people will give up their life for their family. They'll give up their life for their country. But at the root of that is self-interest. It's not true benevolence. True benevolence has no reason other than intrinsically loving the person. And we find that when it says, for God so loved the world, he gave his own. There was nothing in him, in the person that he favored, particularly as an individual. He's no respecter of person. But in his mind, in his nature, 
he sought a way to redeem man. And that is the reason. That's the love of God. It's true benevolence. When we say benevolence, it means there's no selfish reason. A man loves his family and country. There's often selfish motivations. It makes him sometime a respecter of persons concerning spiritual things. That's why Jesus said, if you don't hate your mother, your father, your children, your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He means in comparison, obedience to Christ takes precedent over all other affections. So we can see why many people cannot be true disciples. They idolatrize family members or people they have an affection for, or a person that looks good, a person has a good... See, all of this is self-interest. It's not the benevolence. God loves man because he made him in God's image, even though he's flawed, and he sought to redeem him. Even from the beginning, we will see with Adam, when he clothed them with the skins of animal, he was already exercising part of his plan, revealing it, that your seed shall bruise the serpent's head. He was already instituting grace at a certain level, but it wasn't going to be fulfilled till 1,000, 2,000 years later or so. So that's what he's telling them. And the law was brought about to be a schoolmaster. And he did all of these before he brought forth Christ as the sacrifice. It was to train man, and the angels observed these things to see how God works with the wicked, how he can make them righteous, how he can redeem them. Well, when one-third of the angels fell, there was no repentance for them. So the angels, nothing would have been explained but by experience, and they didn't experience evil. So he wanted them to watch how God deals with the new creation, with the true Christian, and the angels learn wisdom. They see where sin leads, where grace leads. They see the working out of this without experiencing sin. It's believed that Adam and Eve, had they not disobeyed the Lord, he may eventually give them permission to eat the tree of knowledge because it would not have been out of a disobedience. It would have been a step up in revelation of who he was. But because they disobeyed, they put themselves in an awkward position, uh, having no claim on God and being at enmity with him. Remember, the first results of their sinning was to hide from God, and no one told them to hide. And they were ashamed of their nakedness, and they were fearful. And he asked them, who told you to be afraid? And see, what told them? Their conscience. When they sinned and were separated from God spiritually, instinctively, they knew the judgment of God was coming. See, God has put that in the human nature. Their conscience was awakening the wrong way. All of a sudden, they knew right from wrong. So instead of Eve getting knowledge, she, she was looking to know things. They were sort of thinking that God was keeping something from them, and they just wanted to know. Their intention was not to rebel or despise God, but they were tricked. She was tricked, and she fell for the trick, and she ate, and all of a sudden, her eyes were opened. Judgment came, sin came, death came. All of that. So she got the wrong kind of knowledge. 
Well, the angels can learn that without experiencing what one-third of them did. And once God tested them, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from the sky as lightning. In an instant, all of the third angels were cast out of heaven once the trial was carried through. We're not told anything about whether it went on for weeks or months or years, but there finally came a time where grace shuts the door. Remember, at the ark, it was God who shut the door. He shut them out from grace. It didn't matter if Noah wanted to let people in. It was in his business. So once God, once the master of the house stood up and shut the door, the five foolish virgins could not get in. See, the limit, the timing, the probation was wrong. So people that are in the lake of fire, they have run the course. They have tried God. They have procrastinated. They were given time to get things right, and they wasted their time. And that's why there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, not only the torments of hell, but the utter hopelessness that it's too late to do anything about it. See, they're not given that time anymore. So when a person enters hell, the door of grace is shut. God does not favor them. Actually, the Bible talks about it's a continual wrath of God. He's not feeling sorry for them. He's judging them as wicked. He has, the Jesus said, outer, utter contempt for them. So God has a disregard and that makes hell worse that he doesn't listen. He's not interested in anything once they enter that wicked state, okay? So we could not redeem ourselves. So Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, had to take on the human nature, had to live like a human. He was born of the virgin because original sin is passed through the male. So he had no original sin, so he wasn't born into sin like everybody uh, after Adam and Eve was. So he had no inner drawing to sin. He had no wicked nature, no magnetic. And then he had to resist temptation, which obviously he could still be tempted or the devil wouldn't have wasted his time with him. So he had to not only be born sinless, he had to live a sinless life. It was not just the two or three hours on the cross. It was a lifetime of obedience to the Lord. Then his sacrifice was acceptable. And God in his law and justice and in his wisdom, he said, this is the way I can redeem men. If I can get someone to represent them, the wicked who is not wicked. Well, only one person could do this, okay? So he died and raised. This is why Paul will tell us we have been crucified with Christ. So when Jesus was crucified, as far as God legalism was concerned, the sins of the world and every human were placed on him. So he made provision for the whole world. But only those who receive or believe in him can get the things that God offers. It's not automatic. This is for those who believe. But he makes provision for everyone. No one's going to stand before God and say, well, I didn't know. They have an inner law, the conscience. They have other things. It doesn't matter if they don't hear the gospel. The gospel is a better state. It gives us greater privileges. 
But those under the old, the Gentiles and the Jew, God judged them according to their conscience, and he allowed certain amount of space for wickedness, for repentance. They were not perfect, but he winked at their ignorance. He understood they could not free themselves, and that was the provision he was making. So he temporarily covered their sins so he wouldn't have to judge them, and he could deal with them. But it was only through Christ that the actual sin was removed. All the animal sacrifices would have been useless if Christ had not on the cross said it is finished and died for us. Then when he resurrected, God says, now I can resurrect the sinner and make him a righteous person. I can link him with Christ. As he's linked with Christ, he has the righteousness of Christ. I will count Christ's righteousness to them. And that's what he did to Abraham. When he believed him, we will see, uh, a lot of people think it's just believe, just believe. There's no such teaching. James and Paul will explain to you what this believing is. And in every case, it involves obeying and continuing believing. It's not a one-time useless act. And Abraham went many, many years. And only when he offered Isaac up and offered to kill him, God said, now I know you believe me. And then he began to bring forth the promises. But was it basically the full promises? Because he walked by faith. He continually to believe against all opposition. And that's how he became a symbol of the father of faith to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Okay, Verse 8, God proves his love, his benevolence, and goodwill. See, that's from the nature of God. That's from, we say, attributes or character. So in a sense, God, because of who he is, he, in justice, he owed the wicked sinner nothing. But because he loves and his nature is, he found a way. See, in his love, he seeks to redeem. He seeks to help. And so it's not like he just left everybody and said, well, now you're on your own. It's not a matter of just justice. Justice does not override the love of God. It's just one attribute. Mercy is another. Being gracious. When he told Moses, I'm gracious and loving kindness, I'm just too. So one doesn't cancel out the other. He deals with all of these in his wisdom. And when people despise his goodness and long suffering, then the end comes and justice comes into play and judgment. But those who respond to it, he can be gracious and loving kindness to them. So that's the whole nature of God we're dealing with. So it's toward us. And what is this love and benevolence? Like we said, it's sort of intrinsic. Like gold is valuable simply because it's gold. Its value is in itself. So when God looks at man, even though he was made the image of God and he marred that image, he's still a being, a spiritual being. And as far as God is concerned, he's redeemable. The angels were not, the fallen angels. So in his intrinsic value, he said, for God so loved the world. Uh, there was nothing in their personality or their character or their lifestyle that made him love them. He loved them 
because of who they were and who he was. So he had to make a plan because of his love. Justice says you can leave it. But again, justice is not all that God is. A lot of people think he's bound by just justice. No, he can show mercy, loving kindness, patience. That's the whole nature of God. And the scripture says God would rather have mercy than judgment. Well, he exercises both. And under certain conditions, he can't do one or the other because man refuses to do what's required of him. If a man does not confess and repent of his sins, there can be no mercy. Mercy depends on repentance. Yet Jesus took us a step further. It says grace and truth. Grace depends on God's character, his wisdom, and what he decides he wants to do. He's free and sovereign in that. Mercy is dependent on repentance. Grace, God can extend grace to anyone, but if they do not respond to it, then ultimately judgment will come into play. The person that's been given more and more grace is going to be judged harder. See, that's the justice of God coming into play. So if he extends grace to a person, that's his privilege. He said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll harden him, I'll harden. Well, he hardened Pharaoh and King Saul and others because they played on his grace too much, and they run it out to where he said, I'm not going to be gracious anymore. That's his right. But had they repented during the time of grace, he would have given them mercy. So that's the nature of God. He says it's not his will that any perish. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn, repent. See, that's what it means. And get right with God, and then he will forgive their sins and take them up again. Okay, his character of love and goodwill, he found a way to appease his holiness and justice. See, he could exercise them all, and he could show mercy and grace. He sent his son, and the Christ died for us, to please the Father, it pleased the Father to save us from the wrath and judgment on the sinner. God has not done away with wrath and anger. People think that Jesus come, God's not angry. but No, God's dealing with man in a more gracious way. But Jesus said, if they don't believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on them. And we'll see that Paul's going to tell us that the Christian is saved from the further wrath of God at Judgment Day. So there's always going to be a wrath of God against the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, the wicked person. Wrath is anger and vengeance because of justice and holiness. This is the nature of God. It does not change. He said, I am the Lord who changes not. Isaiah tells us this. He doesn't change. He can move within certain freedom or sovereignty, but he can't go against his own nature. He doesn't desire to do that. As the scripture says, God cannot be tempted with evil. It cannot appeal to him. People say, well, all things are possible. You're misusing scripture. When people say all things are possible of God, you read the context. The all things is that which is good, that which is in the will of God, that which is acceptable by prayer. 
the sin, the prayer of the wicked person for selfish things, it's impossible for God to answer for good unless he intends to judge them because of it. He can do that. He can give them what they want and send destruction with it. And he did that with the manna, remember. But he he has to be true to his nature. He does not desire to be otherwise. See, people think he's looking for a way. No, it's who he is. He will always be just, holy, gracious, and kind, because that's who he is. But man will determine how far God can go with him. If he goes too far, then God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. Enough's enough. All men are under probation as long as they live. What is probation? The sentence, if a guy is let out of prison on probation, he's let out for good behavior or a pardon or something, but mainly he's let out, and if he misbehaves enough, they put him back in prison. So in God's sense, through Christ, he's put us on probation. So as long as we stay with Christ, we're okay. But if we get away from him, judgment comes again, and we have to answer for our past sins. Let's take a break here.